well. If you have a Bible, I want you to start in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. We will have this on the screen as well, but if you have it on your phone, your iPad, um, maybe an actual Bible, uh, we, we will start in Acts 1. And as you're turning there, um, I wanted to tell you this story about Facebook. And I don't know how many of you know this or have heard this story. It was, it was, uh, there was a lot of hype around this several years ago. But back in, in 2008, Facebook faced a protest from a portion, portion of its users who staged something called a virtual nurse in. Now, this is going to get really awkward for a minute, but thousands of new mothers posted picture after picture after picture of themselves nursing their children to see what Facebook would do. Then they did this because not too long before, several pictures of mothers doing the same thing had been flagged and removed as inappropriate content. Now, to understand how Facebook got to this point, how we got to this point, you have to go back to the origins of Facebook. When the social network was created early on, their leadership team created something to run the social network, or at least part of the social network, called the Site Integrity Team. And this was a group of employees, about 12 employees, and in that group, they composed a one-page document that spelled out what could and could not be posted to Facebook. And the document basically boiled down to several things. They said nudity is bad, hate is bad, and if you feel bad when you see it, you need to remove it. So it was pretty simple for these 12 folks. A one-page content guidelines. If, you, if something makes you feel bad, take it down. Now, obviously, as you can imagine in our world, things got much worse. And so in 2008, when this protest happened, the question had become not is nursing okay, but rather what type of pictures actually, actually constitute nursing. You can imagine the ridiculousness and the complexity that went into these conversations. Now, let me tell you where Facebook has gotten to today, all right? 2.7 billion active users. They've, they've had a couple good years, right? They're, they're doing okay. The site integrity team has grown a bit, right? The original 12 who determined what was appropriate and what wasn't have now expanded to 16,000 employees, just, just flagging content, just removing content. 16,000 Facebook employees, that's their job. One of their office locations is in Manila in the Philippines, and it requires an entire floor of an office building where employees sit together and check this out. They, doesn't this sound like your dream job? They click through a million bits of flagged content every single day. These people see the worst of the worst, the scams, the spam, the politics, the explicit content, the violent content. It's all there, and these employees have a job of determining what is appropriate and what isn't. Okay, that's Facebook. Now, let me tell you another story. Many of you may know the story of the comedian Louis C.K. He was one of the most successful comedians of, comedians of all time just a few years ago, and he found himself embroiled in a scandal for inappropriate behavior and experienced what many of you know or have heard of is called cancel culture. Because of his moral failures, he was canceled. Everybody kind of ganged up and said, you're done, and, and, and rightfully so. Now, a couple years after that, not long ago, the comedian was invited back to perform at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, one of the most famous comedy clubs in the whole world. And of course, there was all this rage that came out. How could you let him come back? How could you put him back on a stage? What does this look like? But what was most fascinating to me in this story as I read it was listening to the owner of this comedy club. Now, you got to understand, this is a completely secular man. This man has no desire to follow Jesus that I know of, and he was struggling with the question of forgiveness as he was interviewed. He verbally wondered, how long should it last before someone is given another chance? So I read this story and I found secular people asking 
theological questions, which is super fascinating to me. Now, a few, few other story bits from our modern world. I'm going to fire a whole bunch of stories at you, then we're going to tie them together. When we talk about cancel culture, this is about ending someone's notoriety based on moral failure or even more likely, more often, opinions that others just simply don't like. We, we shut them down. Not, not long ago, Harper's Magazine posted an open letter written and signed by some of the most liberal writers and thinkers around asking that we stop shutting down ideas different than our own. They posted this letter, said, please stop the cancel culture. That's one story. Another story, and I don't know if you know this, there are more than, some of you are going to gasp at this, there are more than 60 terms, some of you are going to go home and do research, there are more than 60 terms to define someone's preferred gender today. Like on Facebook, there's like 50 to 65 options that you can choose as your defined gender. A few years ago, I preached a sermon about human sexuality, and I told you there were up to 23. So just a few years, we've more than tripled the options of gender. I don't know how that happens, but it has happened. In 2017, to to, to play into more of the, the, the stuff that's going on, a man filed a lawsuit for the right to be a practicing machinist. Anybody know what that is? Okay, you're going to find out. He was seeking legal right to marry his MacBook computer. Headlines from 2020, if if we didn't have enough craziness around us. One headline said, how to have a successful park date from two meters apart. Welcome. Uh, A couple in California this this past couple years, they've invented a smart crib that actually detects the sleep patterns of a child. And when the child starts to wake up, the the crib begins to rock them back to sleep at the first sign of restlessness. The crib does it all, they say. Parents need not be bothered in the middle of the night to be a mom or a dad, but unless you need to change the settings on the crib. Doesn't that sound amazing? And, And I will say, in all these stories, I haven't even touched our political world. I'm saving that for next week. Let me just say it this way. When we take all these stories, right? Let me just say it this way. We are, in 2020, and I I believe in recent decades, losing our collective minds in the midst of a storm of chaos. Now, you just amen, but I said we. I didn't say they. So I just lumped you into this whole conversation. We are losing our collective minds. And today, I want to talk with you about how we should respond in the midst of the cultural chaos as followers of Jesus. And to get there, we need to understand some some brief historical philosophy. See, when thinkers break down history into different ages, there are kind of two lanes of thinking when they look at the, the movement of history. Some, and you've seen this picture, some believe it's a march of progress. Go ahead and bring that, that slide up. This, this march of progress, we don't have that slide. I didn't plug it in. Sorry, Nathan. It's amazing, right? It's an amazing picture. The March of Progress is, is kind of the typical evolutionary picture you've seen, moving from monkey to man, right? It's, it's the movement of history that says we've gotten better and better and better. There's evolution, and, and we've moved from ancient prehistoric to pre-modern to modern, and now we are just advancing incredibly. History continues to move us forward, and that's the march of progress. Now, the other lane of thinking for historians is what they would call the myth of progress, And they would say, well, progress is kind of this illusion, and things have changed, but they're not necessarily better. We're still all crazy, right? 
And regardless of the view, history tends to break down, according to historians and philosophers, into different ages with different values. So if you were to go back and take a really fast history class, which I'm going to give you in about two minutes, they would say that the world started in kind of this pre-modern view. So kind of before 3500 BC up through the Middle Ages, right? And in the pre-modern world, there was the appearance of of humans to systems of writing. So when we trace the pre-modern world, it starts with the appearance of humanity all the way up till the written language. So the pre-modern world was all about functionality. We needed tools, so we made wheels. We needed tools, so we made fire. And then writing started to change things because it allowed us to record our history. And and so when the Roman Empire collapses and, and the printing press is created in 1439, now we have something called mass communication. Aren't you glad we have mass communication today? No, okay. Um, That's pre-modern. Then we talk about the modern world, which is kind of the second designator of history. And the modern world goes from about 1620, this is debatable, all the way to 1945. This is the Renaissance, all the way up through the Industrial Age. This is the birth of ideas. This is life uh, advanced through human ingenuity. This is the scientific age. It's about American independence. It's about Darwin's theory of evolution. It's, I, I would say the modern age was all about humanistic-centered views, right? I think, therefore I am. Who needs God? Because I exist. I am the human, right? Then we move, and this is, this is the age you're all a part of. We move into the postmodern world, which is kind of, it's debatable, but 1945 or so to the present. Now think about 1945. This is, this is World War II ending. This is Pearl Harbor. This is the collapse of our safety and security. And we've seen this many times in the postmodern world. We've seen this in 1963 when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. We saw this in 2001 when 9-11 happened. We've seen it this year with this pandemic where all of our systems of security and safety continue to be unhinged and we don't know what to do. But we can't argue we're good at that. Right? This is the postmodern world. The postmodern world is full of what, what, what philosophers call deconstructionist ideas. So you question everything. How do we even know what is real? Who are you to tell me what truth is? And so progress that happened in the modern world has been replaced with skepticism, distrust, cynicism. And I would say it's this postmodernism is kind of this rocket ship that's shooting for the stars, but it's got a leaky fuel tank because everything is up for deconstruction. Now, some, some would argue historically their progress, and it is there. We, we undeniably have progressed. Others would, would argue that progress is a myth. What I want to say to you when we look at the historical divisions, when we look at the movement of history, is that Ecclesiastes 1 was correct when the brilliant writer said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. And then the writer echoes this thought throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything to which one can say, look, this is something new? And the writer says, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Now, here's what I would would mean by this. God isn't surprised by the cycles of humanity. God is not surprised by how crazy we are on social media in 2020. Amen? God is not amazed. I never thought these people would come up with this. 
He's not surprised by that. We've always been in the midst of an incredible potential for good. Humans have always had this this God-given ability to create good, but we stand in the middle of that ability to create good and the dangerous wielding of evil. He has seen it, and he will see it again. And so history is always a mix of the new being cycled together with the old. And friends, that's the biblical story. The biblical story is always some mix of chaos and Kairos. Let me explain what I mean by that. Acts 1 verse 7. I had you turn to Acts 1. This is what it says. Jesus said to them, he's talking to his disciples about when the end would come, when God would form the kingdom uh, among his people. And he says to his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or dates. Now say times and dates. Just say that out loud. Times and dates. Now the word for times there is the Greek word chronos. Chronos in the Greek is everyday ordinary time. You woke up this morning. I hope that you brushed your teeth. That's chronos time. That's everyday regular time. That's chronos. That's step by step, moment by moment. He says it's not for you to know the times, the regular, ordinary time. Or he says dates. Now dates, the word there in Greek, is kairos. And kairos is a different understanding of time. Kairos is God-ordained time. It's the moment Jesus says the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. The word there is kairos. It's God stepping into this moment. So biblically, chronos is regular, ordinary time. Kairos is unique, divine time. Kairos moments are the places God can show up anywhere at any time and do anything. Amen? God is the source of time. And in Acts, we see this repeatedly. As we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've seen Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came. We've seen healings, wonders, miracles. Kairos, by the way, is God-dependent. He gets to be responsible for Kairos. You cannot invent your own Kairos moments. Please don't ever come to me and say, God told me to tell you. I will ask you, why didn't God tell me? Because he's the one who prompts that. We are faithful in the chronos because he's going to work in the kairos. And God can work kairos in any moment of history with any person that he wants. And when we recognize this, friends, we will begin to live with anticipation of the things that he might want to do in us and through us. But here's the question as we look at our everyday ordinary time, our chronos, and we seek God in the kairos. The question I keep coming to is what about the chaos? What do we do with the chaos around us? What does God call us to as followers of Jesus in the middle of the chaos? And in Acts 7, I think we see this. If you want to flip over there, Acts 7, we've been working through Acts chapter by chapter, talking about the way that the Holy Spirit and God himself resets our lives. In Acts 7, if you were to read the beginning of this chapter, the disciples have been seeing the church grow. The church is exploding. They've added 3,000, then 5,000 believers, and and they've been facing inner turmoil, as we talked about last week in Ananias and Sapphira and kind of the struggles of, of maintaining that. And so, as with any church, as it grows, as it gets larger in number, there are more management issues. There are more things to figure out. You have to manage more money. There's more to do. People are being neglected, and the disciples then appoint seven who are to kind of handle the day-to-day tasks. They take these seven leaders and they put them in these positions. And one of these men is a man named Stephen. And Acts tells us that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and Stephen had the ability to work miracles. And so the religious leaders in chapter 6 start an argument with Stephen. They begin to debate him. And then they plot to stir up a crowd and seize him and bring him to trial. And at the beginning of chapter 7, Stephen preaches fire. You should read the beginning of chapter 7. His sermon is absolutely incredible. 
And he calls them, these religious leaders, out of their hypocrisy. He steps up to the plate and unloads against their false religion. And that creates this moment of chaos like Stephen has never known. Look at verse 54 of chapter 7. He's just finished his sermon. Here's what it says. When the members of the Sanhedrin, the religious body, heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Now I want you to understand this is the first really serious attack on the church. This is a moment that is going to catalyze movement, as we'll talk about. It's persecution. It's, it, it's Stephen's chaos. And we see how the people of God, in Stephen's life, we see how the people of God are called to respond to the chaos around us. Look at verse 55. But Stephen, I love this, the chaos. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is Stephen's response to the chaos. And I'm going to give you four things that Stephen does in the middle of chaos that I think we can still practice today. The first thing is is that Stephen is prophetic, right? I think in the middle of our chaos, our cultural chaos, our life chaos, our relational chaos, we are called to be prophetic. Stephen is in the midst of the greatest chaos of his life. He's about to be killed, and he has to sense the threat that is coming. And yet he zeroes in on this moment as they're gnashing their teeth at him, furious, angry, about to kill him, and he narrows in on the truth God wants him to proclaim. He stands as one who is prophetic. Now, at New Community, we've talked about this before, but I think for a while we as followers of Jesus have missed what it means to be prophetic. We tend to think that the prophets were only about telling the future, and at times that did happen. But more often than not, the prophet, prophets were not just about telling the future. They were about, don't miss this, they were about speaking truth to power. This is why the prophets of God confront their failing kings and call them to repent and seek God. This is why they never fit the political inklings of Israelite culture or the Roman Empire. Rather, the prophets stand outside of any system and call the system to account. That's the work of a prophet. They confront both the progressive and the fundamentalist, the liberal and the conservative. Can I step on all your toes today? The weak and the strong the powerful and the elite with the truth of what God might say in each of their cultural moments. One one writer defines what he calls the prophetic witness as seeking to embody and evangelize the truth that the king has come and he's coming again to make all things new. That's the role of the prophet, to tell the truth that the king of our universe is really the king of our world. Friends, this is exactly what Stephen is doing. He looks and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, in the midst of the chaos around him, speaks and embodies the truth that Jesus is king of all. He's even, and some of you, this is all you need to hear today, he's even king of your chaos. And the truth that Jesus has a way of making the world right that has come and is coming. Friends, the scriptures define those of us who live under the authority of the kingdom of God as ambassadors, strangers, exiles. See, we are not at home in the middle of the chaos, amen? That is not the place where we dwell. We do not belong. And when we lose sight of that theme, that thread that tells us we play a part in changing this world, but it is not yet the world that is ours. When we lose this, we lose our prophetic voice. Now, here's the other thing about the prophetic voice and its requirement for chaos. Today, I think as Jesus followers, we've messed up the prophetic voice. When we see the prophets in scripture enacting their prophetic voice, just as Stephen does here, it's often used to the ones who should know better. 
They prophesy to those who should know better. The prophets most often speak to the religious hypocrites, the religious leaders. And the same writer who defines the prophetic voice suggests that John the Baptist was standing in the wilderness with a prophetic voice saying, Come, all you who are broken, repent because the king is coming. And yet at the same time, he's speaking to those who should have known that the king was coming. You're missing it. He's speaking and he's inviting those who don't know and rebuking those who should know. This is where we've misused our prophetic voice today as the church. We, we tend to prophesy, or at least we think we're, we're prophesying. You may not call it prophecy, you may call it arguing. I'm going to stand, I'm going to defend the truth to the ones who don't know any better. While we leave the religious alone. You see, the prophetic voice is deeply rooted in the authority, the truth of God's word. And and here's what this means. Please don't miss this. Some of you, this is what you need to hear because you're going to have less anger and angst if you realize this. The prophetic truth doesn't work on a secular culture or or on anyone not claiming allegiance to Jesus. It doesn't work. And yet we see our Christian brothers and sisters and we find ourselves today lambasting prophetically those celebrities, athletes, politicians, and others who don't know the truth of Christ or let alone pledge allegiance to him. Why do we expect non-Christians to act like Christians? Why would we expect that? So when we look at our chaos and our role as prophets within it, friends, perhaps we should speak the truth to our brothers and sisters rather than to the lost sheep who need a shepherd. The chaos of our current moment necessitates that prophets use their voice. Now, a couple more things to know about prophets really quickly. They are reluctant leaders. You will not find a prophet in the scripture who goes, oh God, awesome. You've called me to something amazingly incredible. I can't wait. You find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the prophets going, please, I I don't know if I can do this. Who am I? They're reluctant leaders. They humbled themselves. They didn't move. The prophets never move with political agendas, but rather with the uh, Holy Spirit agenda. And these prophets also live with God's agenda because they're nonpartisan, they're non-sponsored, and they're open to all parts of God's truth. So what does that mean for us? The prophets are pro-life, but they're pro-life all the way from cradle conception to the grave. They have an ethic of life that stretches across all of life. They are anti-racist and anti-violent. They walk in the tension. They are anti-hypocrisy at every Level The prophets envision the future, but you know what they don't do? And this is why prophets annoy us so much. They envision the future, but they don't systematize it because they mess us up. They give us the vision. They don't give us the mechanics, and they disrupt those of us who need disrupting. That's the prophetic voice in the middle of chaos. And today, we need those voices in our chaos. Look at verse 57. At this, they covered their ears. The religious leaders have heard Stephen say he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What he's saying is Jesus is king. you got to wake up to this. And they cover their ears because for them this was blasphemy. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, that's foreshadowing. We'll get into that later on. But while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Look at Stephen's second response. So he's prophetic, but he's also now powerless. He's standing in this moment speaking truth to power and yet remaining powerless. You know, some of the people, some of the most powerful people I know are the people who have embraced being powerless. Think about it. The most influential people in my life are the most surrendered 
people. I read an article while I was prepping this week of a woman who had been a former bodybuilding champion, and she'd gone through some incredibly chronic pain and sickness. She was undiagnosed. She suffered for years without knowing the real issues. Multiple surgeries, no answers, chronic fatigue, endless pain. She had no relief, and yet she was able in this story to embrace what Philip Yancey calls the gift of pain. And she said this. She said, illness brings into sharper relief the interconnectedness of the temporal, the temporary, and the supernatural or eternal worlds. Illness magnifies the kindness or cruelty of those on whom we rely in our weakened state. And she went on to speak of the nurses, the kindness of nurses who would simply embrace her when they had no answers. When she was at her deepest levels of pain, of friends who cared for her by being present, providing food, and simply listening. In her perspective, the reality of her powerlessness is what gave her the gift of the love and care that she experienced. See, in our world, the ability to be prophetic and powerless don't coexist. We have a world, and I want you to really register this, we have a world where prophetic and powerless can only go together in God's kingdom. I, I know many people who want to be prophetic and powerful, don't you? You're five and a half weeks away from the election. You do. They want to be prophetic and powerful, or they want to be quiet and powerless. Many of you, that's your approach. You just want to put your head in the sand and say, it's okay, I don't have to deal with this. But the kingdom of God is full of people who embrace the prophetic call and yet stand so surrendered that they're willing to be powerless. They're willing to be completely surrendered. Right now, we live in a world where every voice is fighting for power. Politically, of course. Religiously, yes. But, but what about your own personal life? See, it's easy to blame the chaos outside of us. Easy to criticize political systems or social systems or religious systems. But what about you? What about your relationships? What about your marriage? Where are you fighting for power? Your children, your friendships, your job. Where are you fighting for control? that God has not offered to give you? And where do you need to relinquish that power and say, God, I'll be powerless in this chaos. I will surrender this to you. Stephen says, Lord, Jesus, I surrender my spirit to you. It's, it's complete powerlessness. Look at verse 60. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now the third piece of Stephen's amazing approach to this chaos is his care for those who were attacking him. See, he's prophetic, he's powerless, and now he, he and some of you are not going to like this word because I'm calling you to it, he's pastoral. He's shepherding these enemies. It's the fact that even in the middle of the attack, even in the middle of the moment that would take his very life, Stephen is praying for the ones who are killing him. He's shepherding them, pastoring them. Friends, do you want to see our world change? Do you want to see new conversations that we haven't had in a long time? Do you want to see new approaches to social media, new ways of engaging difficult relationships and endless arguments? Here's how we do this. We take a pastoral approach. Now, I know, I get it. Many of you are like, I'm not a pastor. I don't have to be nice to other people. You do. That's your job. <laughs> you don't know me. But can I tell you something? There's this idea in the Greek, in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are God's handiwork, his workmanship. And the Greek word there is poema. You know what word that comes from? Just shout it out. It's poem. 
We're God's masterpiece. We're his poetry. When God creates us, he's thinking beautiful thoughts. He's got poetry in mind. And then the writer of Ephesians goes on, and in Ephesians 4, he says Christ himself, he's talking about the church and the gifts that God uses in the church. He says Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and watch this, the pastors or shepherds and the teachers. So for the church to be the church, we all live into those gifts. And one of those gifts is to be shepherding others, pastoring others. Now check this out. The word for pastor or shepherd in this Greek is poimen. So we have poema, God's handiwork, and poimen, the pastors. The poetry that we're called to be in God's kingdom happens as the poets shepherd others. You are called to find the beauty in others' lives to help them become the beautiful masterpiece that God has made them to be. Now think about this. God wants to create poems in us, and the gifts that he gives to his church are for the pastor's shepherds to be so beautiful at loving others that they would lead others to more beautiful lives. To me, the most beautiful moment in this Stephen story is his prayer for his attackers. This is the twist. This is the beautiful mystery of how the victim can de-arm his enemies with love, with care, with shepherding. You want to know how we engage this world right now in the midst of the most polarized election we've seen that's five and a half weeks away? Loaded with emotion, arguments, cynicism that leads to hopelessness. You want to know how we engage in the midst of a culture where we feel like our police are being cast aside as worthless or our black brothers and sisters are being victimized with systemic racism? How do we engage a world where the possibility of complex conversations that both affirm that, yes, black lives really do matter, but that doesn't mean we entirely endorse an organization as a whole seems impossible? How do we walk in this world? Pastor people. Shepherd people. Commit to walking with sheep in the middle of dangerous ground. See, the shepherd protects the sheep that he loves. He guides them. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. In our chaos, we spend so much time trying to change people. More time, by the way. We try to change people more than we try to understand people. We try to shift or convince people more than we try to empathize with, empathize with people. Then we try, truly try to love them. This is the answer to our chaos at every level right now, is to love people, shepherd them, walk beside them with undying commitment. And then look at chapter 8, verse 1, the last part of this. Saul approved of their killing Stephen. By the way, what happens to Saul in just a couple chapters is going to blow your mind. You need to stay with us. On that day, as Stephen is killed, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Here's the last part of how we live in the midst of the chaos. We do what the church did in the midst of Stephen's chaos. We find ourselves continually proclaiming. We're prophetic, yes. We're powerless, yes. We're pastoral, yes. But we're also proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ. Most scholars will argue this is a transition moment in the book of Acts. If you remember, Jesus' mission was for the apostles and believers to be his witnesses. And he told him, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To this point, seven chapters into the book of Acts, the church has said, we will be your witnesses right here in Jerusalem. That's good, but that's not what I told you to do. I said, stay in Jerusalem until you move to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And it takes the chaos to move the church faithfully towards the mission that God had called them to. 
It's the persecution that scatters the church. His message has only been in Jerusalem, and when Stephen is killed, the message becomes a movement. The threat, the embracing of their powerlessness, the threat and death of Stephen catalyzes a movement to the next parts of Judea, Samaria. And as the movement moves, they find themselves proclaiming. Friends, in the chaos of your life, in the chaos of our culture, always be proclaiming. You say, proclaiming what? Proclaiming good news. Good news. You remember John Krasinski in the middle of the pandemic, how he started the Some Good News? You guys remember that? Now, if you haven't seen it, go Google it. John Krasinski, the guy from The Office and other stuff. I don't, I don't, that's kind of how I know him. He started this video, and people were just going crazy because in all this crazy chaos, he starts putting good news out. In every video, you laugh, you cry, you feel. Why does it take a celebrity to proclaim the good news? Why can't we do this as the church? See, these disciples, after Stephen dies, they're proclaiming good news as they're scattered. Do you think it was convenient? Do they think, oh, this chaos feels so good. Let's just tell everybody the good No, they're being forced out of their homes. They're proclaiming good news as they're grieving. They've lost one of their, their faithful leaders, and they're grieving, but they're proclaiming. They're proclaiming as they're persecuted. Saul is going house to house, dragging off men and women, and they're going, no, it doesn't matter what Saul does to us because we've got good news. We've got hope. He can kill our body, but we're still going to raise from the dead. It's always good news. See, as we close, friends, you know and I know we are living in the chaos and for centuries, literally centuries, millennia, the followers of God have taken certain approaches to the chaos. Here's the approaches we take. Some of you, some of us, we're ostriches. You with me? Some of us, we just want to put our head in the, head in the sand. When the chaos happens, it's uncomfortable. Just give me my, my home, my Netflix, a glass of wine, and I'm going to put my head down. We're going to be okay. Do you know that's happened for centuries? First century, the Qumran community, they were scribes who said, the world's so evil, we're going to go live in the mountains. Some of you, that's why you live in West Virginia, by the way. You're like, this place is just doesn't get as crazy as all those other places, right? You're like the new Qumran community because you're just sitting here. If I just know Jesus, it'll be okay. Guess what? The chaos is still happening. And that's what people have done. They've become ostriches and just tried to hide out. And, and that's those of us today who choose to just disengage. Some of you are ostriches. Some of us, though, we're hawks, Right? We're not going to hide. We're going to attack. We're going to point out every time somebody's wrong, every time that post is false, whatever it is, we are going to pick it apart because when we attack, we go on the offensive. We will change everyone and change everything. You study church history. The hawks were the crusaders. We got to change this world. Or we take the approach of the chameleons, which is just blend in. Just kind of fit where you go. Like, just change your skin based on who you're with and where you are. And I think all of those approaches are wrong. We need a Stephen approach. We need a church that reengages our prophetic voice with powerlessness. A church that isn't afraid to speak truth to power, but does so in a way that shepherds and walks pastorally with people. And as we do all those things, we proclaim the good news. There are moments you will have to speak truth to your chaos prophetically. You will have to look at your relationships, the chaos of your relationships, and say, this is not what God wants. I have to shift this. 
This is not what, what I'm meant to live for. I have to change this. This cannot exist this way anymore. There are moments in our culture you will have to speak up and speak truth and say the way that our world is valuing the system is not right. It is false. And that's a prophetic voice. But as you do that, you will have to walk open-handed, surrendered, going, God, I will follow what you say if it costs me. By the way, this chaos didn't end well for Stephen. I'd love to give this message and say Stephen did all these things and he went on doing whatever God called him to do. No, he lost his life. And it may cost us. The chaos may cost us. But if the movement continues to move, it's worth it. We need to learn to become people of peace in the middle of chaos. I'm going to invite the band to come. And as you think about this, I want you to, to think about it this way. I was trying to wrap this up, and I always struggle with the endings of sermons. And, and this morning I was thinking about this. My, my kiddos need their parents to be parents of peace. Right? They need their, their mom and their dad to be a calm in the storm. The place where God's people worship, the church, the gathered body, and I don't mean this building, I mean the gathered body, the believers together, is called the sanctuary. It's called the place of rest. And what I fear, what I worry about, is that we've lost the ability for the people of God to be the place of rest in the middle of chaos. I worry that we have become more chaos. I worry that we are being driven by the culture rather than shaping the culture. I worry that we have stopped dreaming, stopped imagining, stopped envisioning, stopped innovating what God has called us to be. And every time we share that thing or we repost that thing or we recite that thing or we engage that argument like the hawk or we bury our head like the ostrich, we're missing the opportunity to stand like Stephen did and go, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. I will speak truth while I love others. It's truth and love, by the way. I will do those things and I will proclaim good news at every moment. Friends, some of you need this conversation at the cultural level. Some of you need to have new ways of engaging the cultural chaos. But let me say what I think is most important today. Some of you need this conversation around your life. Some of you need to not, I don't need to talk about politics yet with you. I don't need to talk about social media. I need to actually say to you, in your marriage, you need to engage the chaos in a new in your job, you need to engage the chaos in a new way. Fighting for the hearts of your kids, you need to engage the chaos in a new way. We've called this series Reset, and it's the chance to hit that Control-Alt-Delete and start over because of the Holy Spirit. Today, I'm inviting you to that place. And I know that we're in social distancing world, and, and we're in all of that stuff right now, but I, I just felt like today we need to open the altar and you can do that from your seat. If you want to just spend some time as we sing this song, praying and going, God, I just need to surrender the control of this chaos. I need to give up. I need to be emboldened, God, to speak prophetically, speak truth. I'm reluctant, but I want to speak out of your word, not out of my own agenda. You can do that right where you are. But if you feel like you need to act on this, that, that there may be something powerful to just saying, I need to take a step and come to this place because the altar, as we talk about all the time, is a place of sacrifice. The Old Testament temple, the altar, was where you slaughtered your offering to God. If you need to lay your offering before God, I'm going to invite you to do that. Feel free. You can, six feet apart, whatever you, however we're going to manage that. But let's do business with God today. Let him reshape the chaos around us. Let's pray together.